Welcome to Rappin' PE. I'm your host, Stephen Buller. This is the podcast where we explore precarity, pedagogy, and physical education. This podcast is dedicated to physical educators of the future, past, and present. Episode 10 features Lee Huang. Lee has worked for Philadelphia-based eConsult Solutions. He is involved with quantitative tools for consulting and is a current member of Philadelphia's school board. Within the context of Philadelphia's education system, we will discuss economics and education and the complications of reopening schools during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here we go. Wait for the beat to drop. All right, welcome, Lee. Nice to be on your show, Stephen. Thank you. I'm glad you were able to take the time to join us. My first question, I'd like to start off with like easy stuff. Which is better for you? Do you have a preference between dogs or cats? <laughs> uh, I'm going to offend everyone by saying neither. Ooh, haven't had a neither yet. I can appreciate that. Do you have another animal species that you're fond of? or Flamingos? <laughs> I can rock some flamingos. What about coffee or tea? Do you have a preference? Oh, gosh. Again, neither. Oh, wow. I'm just slaying. <laughs> this is the first time this has ever happened out of the 10 episodes. <laughs> I, I, I try to stay hydrated. So, you know, Philly, Philly, uh, Philly tap. Nice. I drink too much coffee. <laughs> And how about your all-time favorite physical activity? Do you have anything that you preference or enjoyed over your lifetime? Uh, well, I guess I'm kind of a gym rat. I, I you know, the COVID's been tough because uh, I, I'm a regular at the local Y. I miss the camaraderie of waking up uh, early in the morning. And there's a there's a group of uh, uh, men and women there uh, lifting weights or swimming. I, I miss that dearly. I would say that that that's uh, my favorite physical activity is, is going to the Y. Nice. Um, what, or sorry, who are you? What makes you, you? Wow. So we went from dogs or cats to <laughs> about as deep of a existential question as you could pose. Um, I guess, um, you know, I'm a person of faith, um, and that informs that I believe that we're all made as, uh, beautiful and worthy creatures, um, to reflect the beauty and worth of our God. Um, and an important aspect of that is concern for uh, and love towards others. And so I would say that my unique manifestation of that is encompassed in uh, really all the roles that I currently inhabit. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a consultant, I'm a school board member, and, and chose all those things um, because they helped me to be me. That's a beautiful answer. I really enjoyed that. And what do you believe your purpose is as a human? Well, we're sticking with the deep stuff, huh? Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we, uh, I'll, I'll talk about that um, in the context of public service. Um, and, um, you know, people ask me, like, why, why did I uh, decide to apply for a school board? Or why did I Yes, when the mayor appointed me. And I think there was a little bit of kind of calculation of like, uh, can I fit this into my life? Will it be fun? What will I learn? Um, but I do think, um, you know, not to get too spiritual, um, that there is something about calling um, and about being about um, 
the things that you think are important. And when you're given the opportunity to step into that role, you don't really calculate like, well, is this going to be good for my career or do I have the time for it? You just step into it. Uh, what else are you waiting for if you say that you're about these things and then an opportunity presents itself um, and then you say, well, you know, I need to think about whether it works or whether it is going to be, a, you know, you just you just step into it. Um, a lot of people will say I've stepped into it. Um, uh, so, you know, I say, I think, I think that's, you know, that there's, there's kind of a, um, reconciling what you want to be about in your life with the fact that you can't always make the opportunities, uh, uh, that reconcile with that. But when an opportunity presents itself with, you sure as heck, um, better step into it. I 100% agree. And one of the reasons why I like to have these really deep questions after dogs and cats is just to kind of open up people a little bit because a lot within education, a lot of people just think like you're planning, you're doing this, or you're doing that. You're like a robot. And I know that a lot of times is a perspective from students. So it's nice for people to kind of show their human side that we kind of all should be showing a little bit more of, especially right now. But I, I really have to commend uh, the mayor for picking the team that he did. Um, and the other school board members are, you know, I'm, I'm big fans of them. No, no egos, um, no hidden agendas, no aspirations to make a name for themselves or pursue higher office. It's all about um, meeting the moment and doing what's best for the system, for our students, for our employees. Um, and it's really great to get a chance to work in public service with such a group at this time. As I've been following more of the school board since I transitioned from charter to the Philadelphia public schools, it's been, it's been refreshing to have that very open dialogue from many of the board members and like your recent post, just showing that human side and that we're all in this together. All right, so here we go. We're gonna cover a few more questions. We're gonna focus on econ and ed. You're definitely more of an expert on that than I am. Um, could you briefly explain what your role is with Econ Salt Solutions and what they do for Philadelphia and the greater region? Yeah, sure. We're a economic consulting firm. Um, it, to use the current lingo, we bring the receipts uh, to discussions of public interest, uh, which touches a lot of things, uh, economic development, state local policy, transportation, higher ed, real estate. Um, but that does so in a way that, that understands that data and analysis uh, never carry the day by themselves, but must be accompanied by what narrative uh, that data and analysis tell us. And, and also that all of that sits in a real world context of institutions and politics and egos and emotions. Perfect. And how do economics and education actually intersect and why is it important for us to legitimately understand how they intersect? Well, as someone who cares about both economics and education, the reason why I applied um, to serve on the school board is because I don't think there's anything more important for both the emotional well-being of our region as well as its economic competitiveness. And I think that's where the connection lies. People make choices about where to live, where to invest based on the health um, of our schools, our competitiveness depends on an educated workforce. Um, and importantly, as this is an issue that um, our board is particularly sensitized to, the, the drag that inequity in our region levies on us 
um, uh, in our city can only be solved by investing in the next generation through education. Absolutely. And we can see that precarity is here. Like we've known it in Philadelphia and we're seeing it on a much higher scale just because of COVID-19 and people are more aware and a tremendous percentage of humans on the planet are currently struggling with it. Like as we've seen in the news, like on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you see other people's experiences. Um, an article you were tagged in references building community resilience, a framework from development economics. What should administrators or educators and staff from the school take away from this article? Yeah, I'm glad you read our blog and I'm glad that it's been um, stimulated some thought on how do you take orthodox economic topics um, and look at them from the lens of all the uh, challenges that we uh, currently face. Um, and um, that's how I kind of approach the work of the firm is to leverage our firm's expertise to be relevant to today's crisis. And one of the ways that that's true uh, is that economics gives us a framework for looking at the efficient allocation of scarce resources for maximum public good. I had to read that because uh, I've written that down. Um, and, and so let me repeat that. Economics gives us a framework for looking at the efficient allocation of scarce resources for maximum public good. And what that means is that at a time and in a place when we're seeing unprecedented disruption uh, with disproportionately adverse consequences to our most vulnerable households, um, what can we learn from the subfield of our discipline that concerns itself with resilience and recovery around natural disasters that can also help us against so many public health and economic and social uh, ills that we're facing? And a clear takeaway from that part of the economics discipline is that resilience is so important, um, particularly for our most vulnerable households, and resilience comes from investing in protective layers in advance. The whole ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And again, I can't think of a better thing to invest in along these lines than public education. I agree with that. Um, outside of obviously just investing within public ed, are there other tangible steps that communities can take part in to build resiliency? Uh, Let's see, I guess I'll um, answer that from a long-term perspective and then a short-term perspective. And, and so long-term, I do think that it is about educating our children so that they have uh, agency for their lives and skills to compete in an increasingly fast-paced and knowledge-based economy. And that's what's gonna lift up the most people. And that's why we should be investing um, resources in our public schools. That's why I invest my time serving on the school board to make sure that happens. Now, short term, I, I applaud all of the relief efforts of city government and our incredible not-for-profit sector, um, cultural institutions, um, neighborhood serving uh, uh, groups, universities and hospitals, because it's important to um, implement um, sustainable solutions that um, will take time to um, take effect because that just inherently these are long-term solutions. But in the meantime, people are suffering. Um, and if all we talk about are the long-term solutions, I consider that kind of a height of privilege to say, well, the sustainable solution is this thing that's gonna take a generation. So let's focus all our efforts there 
when we're not feeling the pain of what people around us are feeling uh, of the of the suffering that is immediate. Um, and so again, I applaud the relief efforts of our public sector and our not not for profit and for profit sectors to make sure um, that there are resources and attention to some of the immediate um, uh, discomfort that that has been wrought by um, everything that's going on in the world. Um, and so, you know, for example, go back to um, the uh, COVID with our school district um, is is the the a long term thing that we need to think about is um, how do we educate our students in a setting in which we have to be very nimble about um, hybrid versus remote versus in classroom. But now the guidance is changing, and how do we have as little disruption to the educational experience? particularly for students from families that lack the resources to surround their, their, their children with kind of additional supports in this time of, of flexibility. And so that's kind of the long-term perspective. But I'll tell you, you know, short-term, when the pandemic hit and we had to shut the schools down, there, there is a distressingly high proportion of our students that don't get anything good to eat if they don't go to school. And so, yes, we had to worry about redesigning curriculum. Yes, we had to worry about supporting teachers, distributing laptops, setting up all the academic support infrastructure. But more immediately, we had to figure out how to do logistics for meal distribution. Um, and I'm proud to say um, that we've served 3.5 million meals since the shutdown hit. And we had to because of the immediate suffering that needed to be alleviated. And so that kind of long-term, short-term um, um, uh, uh, approach that we have to take um, on, on all these issues is really challenging, but really necessary. Absolutely. It's been amazing to see the response in regards to definitely the food services. And I believe weren't we also doing like a EBT program too, or just to make sure that families could get food? Do yes. You, do you foresee us trying to, now that we're seeing these instances of harm immediately because COVID kind of shook the entire narrative. It kind of awoken like a mass conscious where we're like, whoa, this is going on here. What other steps do you think we could take in a short term or do you foresee happening to help alleviate issues with like hunger, internet access, and just basic resources that many of our students just don't have? I don't think there are any easy answers to that, um, but I do think that it requires a um, immediate, um, uh, uh, a sense of urgency, uh, immediate, um, sustained, uh, and collaborative effort. Um, that if we're waiting around for somebody else uh, to solve the problem, then we're not going to make nearly as big of a dent than if we understand our collective um, uh, uh, togetherness in this. Um, and, um, you know, so this is, of course, city government, it's the school district, um, it's universities um, and hospitals. It's a re there's a reason why they're called anchor institutions. They are stuck in a place uh, in a good way um, and have a vested interest in investing in that place for a lot of different reasons. Um, and they are um, a, a key partner in this. Um, the not-for-profit community, the for-profit community, um, nobody can say, um, nobody can point a finger and say, you know, 
this is messed up. Somebody else has to fix this. We all have to take our responsibility. And by the way, Philadelphia has a really good track record of being collaborative. Um, when I talk with uh, people in other regions, they look to Philadelphia and to some of the partnerships and to some of the kind of collaborative spirit um, that that informs uh, those partnerships um, as as something that they don't have in their regions. Um, and, and so I, I take a lot of pride um, in being a part of a region and a city that that has that sort of collegial spirit. Yes, it's been very kind of refreshing to see that that there's a lot of positives to the area that just don't happen in other regions like you identified. And I think this kind of transitions us kind of a perfect point with the COVID-19 in response, um, unless there's anything you, else you would like to expand upon about econ. That's all I'm thinking about now. So let's talk about COVID. <laughs> let's get to it. Um, since I transferred from a charter school in South Philly and then moved into the school district of Philly, I began listening to more of your board meetings, discussions, and I was recently able to watch the meeting where issues were discussed in regards to the school's budget over the next five years. How do you think that's going to like fall out? I saw that they kind of got some relief, but how do you think that's going to impact school staff and administrators' ability to do their job in the, in the short to midterm, I guess you would say? Yeah, we've been systematically underfunded for quite some time for a lot of big picture economic and political reasons. And um, it forces some just very difficult trade-offs. Um, and, you know, and COVID has just exacerbated that. Um, we went from a very good um, fiscal position to a very bad one. Um, and that is forcing our hand in terms of not having all of the options that we had hoped would be on the table um, as we respond both to recovering from the shutdown, but also making sure that we're leaning into uh, issues of equity and lifting up all of our students. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I, we can, we can advocate for particularly for more funding in, uh, from Harrisburg. Uh, we can we can advocate for more funding from City Hall, and we are an unusual school district and school board in that we don't, uh, unlike any other uh, school board in Pennsylvania, we, in addition to not being elected, we also don't set the tax rates um, for the school portion of property tax. So we are utterly reliant on uh, the city and the state for our funding. We we control the spending side, but we don't control the revenue side. Um, so you know we 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 hope that people will advocate for us in City Hall um, and in Harrisburg um, uh, because it, it, we're you know we're we're um, deeply un, under resourced um, and and have to make some very tough choices uh, as a result. Yeah, that's definitely something I just learned right now. I did not know that. Philadelphia School District is the only board that doesn't have any say or control of that. That's it's very interesting, and that has been a constant, we'll say, uh, touchy subject for so many Philadelphians. Um, I know for me in my house in South Philly, I think I pay like twenty seven hundred a month, and realistically, in comparison to a lot of other areas, I still think I'm technically paying not enough in taxes to support what we need within the city. So hopefully there can be some change and people are more receptive to it. Um, 
because it's definitely needed. And that's a, maybe a topic for another time because the mix of taxes, the mix of tax revenues um, is pretty different in Philadelphia than in other places. Um, our property tax burden is relatively low. We rely on a wage tax. We have a business income and receipts tax. We tax a bunch of other things. Um, and so on the one hand, it creates a more diversified revenue pool. On the other hand, most people would argue that many of those taxes, which we have that other locations don't have, creates a distortive effect that may uh, dampen our economy and uh, in a tragic way, uh, reduce the overall base upon which we're drawing revenues uh, to support our public schools. So it's, it's all kind of interconnected um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, relevant to everything that you've been asking me about. Definitely makes sense. It's like a topic area that I need to dive more into, but there's only so much time in a day and so many topics I can dive into without going to experts. Um, so it's kind of on like a personal note, or this could be in regards to colleagues that you worked with. What was it like having to handle this pandemic emotionally, socially, while balancing your work life as well as your school board life? I imagine that would be chaos. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> that's what we're in the middle of right now. And it, um, you know, the pandemic was not in our orientation when we got on board it. <laughs> two or however many years ago. And I will say that um, it certainly has created unique challenges, but I don't think they've been wholly different challenges, just kind of an acceleration or a magnification of, of the existing ones. Um, you know, uh, uh, jumping into serving on the school board me meant kind of taking on the vast scale of the bureaucracy of the organization that we're in governance over, the, the depth of the need, um, the unacceptable inequities, no matter what metric you look at, all of that was already there. And all of that has just been made heavier by the pandemic. So yes, um, and you know, and by the way, this is a volunteer position that we do on the side, while we all have busy lives and are running businesses and have full time jobs and what have you. Um, but I, that's where I think um, our uh, internal motivations have been so important. Our North Star for all of us has been, you know, how do we safeguard student achievement? How do we do so in ways that make our system more equitable and in turn make our city more equitable? So it's tiring, but, you know, it's that kind of good tiring that we're doing what we believe is important at a time where um, so much is hanging in the balance. And so, yes, we've had to kind of practice good self-care. Uh, we've had to um, not take personally when people yell at us, which happens all the time. We've had to accept the fact that our job is not, here's a good way forward, here's a lousy way forward, pick the good way. It's, here's a bunch of really, really awful ways forward. Pick the least awful way forward and, you know, deal with it um, and, and execute as best as possible. Um, and kind of learning to um, carry that heaviness um, is, is something that we've all had to adjust to. Yeah, I can imagine that's obviously quite stressful on top of the burden of the pandemic. But that's another aspect that a lot of people just don't understand. It's being on the board doesn't mean it's your daily duty and job. It's an added role. Is there anything you would like other people to understand outside of what you just described about your role for the school board? 
Well, I, I, as an economist, we're kind of trained in the reality of trade-offs. And, and so um, it, that's the perspective that I bring to serving on the school board. And, and so I think it's helpful for me to be reminded, and I think it would be helpful for everyone to remember that we're not in a world of infinite resources. Um, and because in fact, our resources are quite constrained, um, then we have to make really tough choices. Um, and the scarcity, by the way, sometimes is money and sometimes it's time and sometimes it's focus. Um, we have to kind of focus on what we think um, is the best use of our time and money and focus and make some tough choices. Um, and you know, we, we live in a diverse city and by diverse, I mean different people see the same issues different ways and are pushing on different things. Uh, and we're not gonna be able to satisfy everyone um, because we have uh, finite resources. And so it isn't for lack of, we've heard you, it isn't for lack of your issue is important. Um, it isn't for lack of, I agree with you that that's something that we should be pushing on. Um, it's just, we have to uh, make really tough choices uh, in this constrained environment that we're in um, and, and, and uh, uh, do our best to figure out what that means. Yeah, and I believe it's as you said on your one Twitter post, it's no matter what, it's an awful choice and we're just kind of in that situation. Um, we're aware that, you know, critique is essential in a democracy and I'm sure you've heard all ends of criticism during your time. Is there anything that you wish citizens of Philadelphia and educators became more aware of so that they could be involved, better informed and supportive of the Board of Ed? versus always coming in from like what's perceived as like a, a lens of critique? Well, I'll, I'll say that um, if people want to critique us, if people want to yell at us, um, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate the engagement and the investment that comes from, you know, coming out and testifying to us even with emotion um, or uh, submitting testimony and writing, whatever are all the different channels that people can uh, tell us that they disagree with us, that they uh, are holding us to account for our, the decisions that we make, uh, even at, at the, that they're um, yelling at us. I mean, that is literally democracy at its finest, is that we're deliberating in as transparent a manner as possible, armed with the same information that has been made publicly available, and people are telling us their uh, take in a very transparent manner, and we're doing our best to digest that. And then at the end of the day, we have to vote, and we have to live with our vote, and we have to vote in a way that we think best advances what we're trying to do as a district. And throughout that whole process, we need to hear from folks. So um, I think, you know, I, um, we appreciate people supporting the board, but support doesn't necessarily mean, hey, you're doing a good job, way to go on that vote. Um, you know, sometimes it's bringing your full emotion and anger. And, and by the way, this, this isn't an intellectual exercise. We're, we're talking about parents who are upset about how their kids are being treated. We're talking about community members who have seen the same injustice over and over again. I, I expect that, I expect there to be emotion and pushback and um, disagreement. Um, and in a sense, that is a form of support for us insofar is that it's support for the process by which uh, we've been entrusted with 
deliberating on information and making decisions. And so, yeah, I mean, if people want to say like, hey, add a boy, add a girl, we welcome that. Sure. And we're, we're humans. So that we like that. But if you want to, if, 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 if you want uh, to know how people can support the board, continue to be engaged uh, with your full selves, with your facts, with your perspective, with your emotion, um, and, and let us have it. Um, because because that's an important part of the of the process that that we want to make sure happens. Absolutely, it's like um, a lot of times I'll have this discussion with fellow educators and in regards to behavior management or how students react or disagree with you. A lot of times it's the canary in the coal mine effect. It's you need to listen and open up. So I 100% agree with you. Um, I hope more citizens become more democratically engaged with this process as well as others within the city because we can't just sit back on Facebook commenting within neighborhood groups. We have to be out and advocate with each other. Um, That's right. That's right. And I'll, t I'll tell you, Stephen, that, you know, with that, with good cause, there are a lot of people that um, don't take a lot of stock uh, in the district because they've been let down so often. And, and I don't, I, I, I respect that. Um, it can be extremely de deflating to raise your voice and feel like you haven't been heard. And I, I get that. Um, and so I, I guess that's why I feel so strongly in support of when people come out and engage with us is because that tells me that they're willing to continue to work with us um, I, I would not like it if um, people that we uh, see stop coming. Um, uh, we want more people to come out um, because we know that we haven't been reliable or trustworthy and it's been very deflating um, and we need to do better. Um, and so when people come out like that, that makes me feel good. Uh, even, even if what they say is you know, hard to hear, it's important to, for, for that contrib contribution to happen. Absolutely, I agree. Um, how has it been with working with the board during COVID, like this whole, like how did you work with the school district and the board to kind of come up with the model that we currently have, because I believe we're still focused on the hybrid model. Like what was that like, trying to figure out while remote instead of actually meeting in person? Well, we've had to... Uh abide by um, guidance from the city's public health department, um, guidance from the governor, um, guidance from the CDC. Um, and, you know, I think, and, and, and when I say we, I mean, Dr. Height um, has to be responsive to all of those um, sources of information um, understanding that that information is is the the, the guidance is is, is ever evolving, um, uh, he has to account for student achievement. He has to account for safety. He has to bring in doctors. He has to bring in curricular experts. Um, he has to account for labor issues. He's got to account for facility issues. I mean, he's got to account for all those things because we, as the board, are holding him accountable to approach the. Um, the problem in that multifaceted way. And then we as a board have to govern in terms of um, uh, getting the right um, information and responding to it uh, and making sure that um, 
uh, the plan that is being developed is in fact responsive to all the things that it needs to be uh, involved in. And we serve as a form of uh, a forum uh, for engagement uh, amongst teachers and parents. Um, again, we're in diverse city. People are coming from different places. For some people, anything but full remote is unacceptable. And for some people, anything but five days a week in, in, in the building is unacceptable. So there's no solution that works for everybody, but we've got to hear everybody out and try to figure out what the best plan is so that people can start to make plans around those plans. And at the same time, we have to be flexible enough to adjust to new information. What's the situation with COVID around the country and in Philadelphia? What's the guidance from the governor um, and, and all of that? Um, and as you point out, we have to do all of that in an environment where we ourselves in our operations are constrained because of the same restrictions that everyone else is, is dealing with. Um, um, but I think throughout the process, um, we've had lots of these kinds of um, conversations to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, public engagement has been a little bit tricky um, on some levels and on other levels, um, it's been great. Um, there are some ways where physically going to a public meeting is easier for folks and there are other ways where patching in on a Zoom call is easier for folks. So there's been some, some pluses and minuses um, uh, and it hasn't always ported over exactly, but the overall kind of impulse of how do we make sure that there's as much public engagement as possible, while a challenge uh, with not without its hiccups um, is something that I think that we've um, provided some room for um, and we've benefited from the resulting participation. Yes, it's been, I enjoyed the participation with the town halls, the virtual ones, we're able to submit questions, have time to talk, and then other formats. That's been very awesome to see. Um, I haven't really heard much about like other areas, but I know I have other colleagues throughout the country where that's not a norm. So it's definitely big props to the board and the district for having those outlets for people. Well, that's great to hear. And I'll note, by the way, since you're a teacher, that that um, on the one hand, I, I wish that we had more engagement directly with teachers since they are both uh, uh, more at risk than children. At least that's my understanding of the science. And, and so we need to kind of pay attention to that. And they're also our partners in executing all of the student achievement goals that we're trying to achieve. And that has to be balanced with the fact that um, a lot of communications and conversation with teachers happens through a union structure. Um, and so you have a teacher's union, PFT Local 3 in, in, in your case, that is compiling information from its members and put out a statement about, you know, this is what we want to see. And so, um, you know, you have almost 9,000 members. Of course, there's going to be a lot of diversity in there. And you're going to have individual teachers that don't agree with the entire, you know, parts of that statement. Um, and so we want to make accommodation for hearing that. Um, but our main kind of engagement is, you know, Dr. Height and President Jordan of, um, uh, uh, of PFT um, and kind of taking our cues from the, the, the statement that was issued and to what extent is the plan responsive to the statement. 
Um, and then also, but also making accommodation to the fact that out of 9,000 teachers, you're going to have a lot of teachers that are like, well, yeah, that's the official position, but I have this other concern, or I feel strongly about this. And so what's the mechanism for making sure that, that that's, you know, part of the mix as well. So it's, um, you know, I, I wish, I wish we could have more engagement, but I also want to respect the channels of engagement that mm -hmm. are in place, um, uh, um, uh, a, as they should be in place. Agreed. It's it's refreshing to have those different options. Um, I know that it's been interesting because the union, I believe, the contracts up in August, so that puts so many people on edge across the board, and nobody has any clue what's going to happen. So we've been appreciative of all the openness, which has been kind of refreshing to see compared to some other areas of the country. Um, let's see. Where was I at? Oh, I guess this question would be technically off. Where did it go? Every once in a while, I lose focus. <laughs> you're, you're a very good host, by the way. I've enjoyed our conversation. It's been very, like, natural and free-flowing. So good prep and good execution. Thank you. I try to be as like this in the classroom as well. <laughs> so I know we're focused on right now the mixed model, so the hybrid model. Shouldn't we also be kind of priming teachers to prep for the worst right now by doing a remote model and focusing on that until we get to in-person so that there's like at least a structure in place? Because in the spring, I was ready to go because I used to teach remotely because I had an injury at the high school level when I taught high school in South Philly. And I know that our response was essentially an emergency response. This wasn't really learning. Nobody was primed for this. Like you're, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like everybody's pyramid was just destroyed. So do you think there'll be a push for asking teachers to prep for remote before they get to their schools or into the professional developments to prepare for the hybrid model? Uh, yeah, uh, this is a hard one because, um, in a sense, even though there are no good solutions, I, I'm not sure that hybrid is the least worst. Um, and, and it, from a teacher standpoint, you could make a very good argument that it's the hardest and least effective. Um, that that you can understand, however difficult, um, a fully remote um, situation. You could understand however difficult um, a fully in-person with all the restrictions that come along with that. With hybrid, you kind of have to, you know, um, you're kind of half here and half there. And, and how do you keep track of all your students if, if um, some are, are not physically with you? And how do you toggle between the two? Um, so I think that's going to be hard enough. Uh, unfortunately, I think um, we just have to uh, cover all the bases and plan for all um, possible scenarios, including uh, the, the possibility that um, the spread of COVID and or guidance from on high tells us that we have to downshift further from two days a week to no days a week. Um, and in the spirit of, of maintaining student achievement and particularly uh, having an equity lens to that, how do we um, not have that be another kind of scramble mode um, for our teachers, um, but have them be somewhat prepared so that there's as little discontinuity 
um, in their instruction and therefore in the instructional experience for our students. And I, I don't know how that is going to be, but I will say that as a board member, I'll be looking for that in the plan um, and posing questions to the administration as far as how do we properly prepare our teachers to thrive in a hybrid model and how do we properly prepare teachers for whatever plan B or plan C or plan Z will need to happen over the course of the year if external circumstances cause us to have to flex. Yeah, because I know for me personally, over the next two weeks before everything kicks in, I'll be preparing for remote learning just based on the current numbers and trajectory and like the decisions of other districts throughout the country. Um, I just don't want to see that last minute instance again where teachers aren't prepped, they're not ready, they're not primed, and then it's emergency learning, which really isn't learning. It's just kind of creating that wider gap. Um, do you, is there like a mechanism in place for handling that situation? Because I know for our school, we had off of the rough estimates about 60% of students, their uh, household or caregivers proclaimed that they just didn't have access to the internet, which yeah. is a huge percentage of a school with like 600 plus kids. Yeah, so you, you have an already difficult problem because of lack of access to resources like Chromebooks and internet um, or parental or guardian time to uh, supervise a student that may not be as um, uh, independent in terms of being able to, 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 to stick to the lesson for you know, several hours a day. Then you layer on top of that the uncertainty of is the whole district going to have to pivot? Are individual schools going to have to pivot um, if there's an outbreak? Um, and so these are all the kind of contingency scenarios that we have to game plan in advance to make sure that people are ready. We know there's going to be a disruption. It's just a matter of, uh, as you said, not being caught completely flat-footed um, and having to uh, uh, endure even more delay and deterioration of quality in, in the instructional experience. Yes, it's all about trying to avoid harm, doing the least harm possible. Um, due to those complications with COVID-19, we're already seeing that maybe our model might not be best just because of, well, human expansion throughout the world and we're chopping down rainforest. We're obviously exposing ourselves to viruses and other things that could drastically change the world just as COVID just did. Um, where do you envision education from your perspective going? Wow, another big hairy question. I love it. Um, yeah, I think it's inherent in the human condition to be exploring, to be pushing boundaries. Um, we're obviously in a time where we're scared, um, where this is appealing to our very real base fear of dying, of being infected. Um, and we've had to learn social distancing. We've had to kind of immerse in our own clans. Um, and you know that's going to be a tricky impulse to to reverse but I, I do think that it is in the human spirit to kind of push boundaries um and you know look every every um infectious disease has eventually we've we've been able to figure out um a vaccine a cure we've been able to i i read a lot of historical books and you know you, you go back not that long ago 150 years ago we didn't know diddly squat about germs um, and, you know, things move so fast that in half that time, 75 years from now, 
um, people are going to look back on 2020 and our and our approach. Well, I mean, our approach to COVID has been a mess, independent. But like, you know, 75 years from now, people are going to look at our our unawareness of how COVID and things like it worked and be like, how, how could you not know that? Well, we didn't know that because we didn't figure it out. Well, how did you figure it out? Well, we figured it out because we educated people um, and we, we applied ourselves to science and to research and we invested money and we set up schools and we did all those things. So I think that, um, at, you know, at this time, I hate to be trite, but like now more than ever, uh, you have to invest in education because you you have to advance human knowledge in all these different ways, um, uh, or or else um, yeah you know our our quality of life our 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 ability to to function as a society and in some um, semblance of of having equity all of these things depend on on education you know because the the opposite of education is ignorance and ignorance is what sends us backwards in in so many ways um, so. I think the future of education is kind of getting people inspired about what you can do when you're educated that can advance um, yourself, advance your group and advance society as a whole, um, which is why um, public schools are, are so important now. Absolutely. I've been pondering for a while. I wonder if just because everything happened, if more schools, I mean, especially with Philadelphia and just the issue of building conditions and all those factors if for the upper grades it turns into almost more like a college model where it's more like workspaces and teachers are producing more student-centered work and kind of personalized a little bit more i do hope that you know we have our our work cut out for us just to survive this present moment but we should always have an eye for what do we what do, what should we look like on the other side and you know to the extent that our educational model needs to be upgraded for and and, and by the way as you know mentioned the college model colleges and universities are contemplating what what do we look like on the other side of this mm-hmm. um, is the is some sort of hybrid format kind of again will we will we look back a generation from now and be like you guys did that same thing for a hundred years and you didn't pivot to all these you know different technological and pedagogical advances that happened during that time um, and so you know I, I think ironically uh, can the school district be a learning organization is an unknown question. You know, can we figure out what's working and um, learn from that and do better for everyone and scale it to, you know, a couple hundred thousand students is, is an open question. I think that now brings us back to economics. How do you think economics can assist us through analyzing what's going on now to make those better decisions? Well, let me go back to um, how I previously defined economics as the um, efficient allocation of scarce resources for the greater good. And so let's unpack that statement a little bit. So efficient allocation depends on public engagement. And so what are the frameworks that we can put in place to ensure that people are not disenfranchised from the things that affect them? That is of critical importance. Um, scarce resources. That's the notion of trade-offs. And when you have trade-offs, that means you have to prioritize. And so again, how do you make sure people are engaged so that we're allocating scarce resources in an equitable manner? Um, And then the final piece of that definition is uh, greatest good. And that acknowledges that for our economy to work, for our society to work, it has to work for all. Uh, A society is only as just and vibrant as it allows for full 
and unfettered participation by all and economic vitality and economic process is fatally hindered if we systematically exclude some or underinvest in others. Um, and so from the lens of economics, um, I think you, you have a lot of um, motivation for getting this right, um, for investing in public education, for ensuring engagement, for having an equity lens. Um, and you know, so that's that's why I'm I'm all in um, as a board member, and and you know, hoping that we can that we can see this through. I think that is a perfect endpoint and response. Now I'm going to flip it onto you. Is there anything you would like to ask me? Any questions, <laughs> concerns? Well, as a teacher, I appreciate. First of all, I appreciate what you do. Um, and um, I have three kids uh, in the public schools and gotten a chance to meet their teachers. Um, they're all fantastic educators committed to uh, instruction, committed to my children. And so, so I thank them, I thank you. Um, I guess my question, since I was saying before that I, I wanna hear you know, where, where teachers are coming from, is, is what, what um, how can we support you in getting ready for a school year in which we really have no idea how things are going to play out on the first day, on the 10th day, on the 100th day? What sort of support mechanism can possibly be in place so that you can flex for such uncertainty? And, and oh, by the way, it's not just uncertain, it's scary. It's, 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 it's scary. Mm -hmm. um, it's scary on behalf of your own har physical harm, the, you know, your family members, your students. So, you know, in light of all of that, like how, how can we support you in being in a good place to, 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 to walk into that? That's a heavy one. <laughs> zing, zing. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I always like when somebody gives me a good question. It makes me feel good. Um, that's a complicated, nuanced area. I think for for me personally, I'm fond of looking things through the lens of science, data, analysis, and then also like the human aspect to it. So for me personally, the data is a huge one. So the current data we have, we know is botched on our end for a lot of political reasons and reasons outside of the control of scientists. Um, for me, if I knew the numbers were good and I knew everything was set up appropriately, I would be fine. So for me, it's about that support in logic, using data. I'm cool with that. That'll make me feel comfortable. And I already am aware that so many other people are deathly afraid of even coming back to school. And rightfully so, just because the recent study from South Korea does suggest even children as young as I think like five year old five years old can spread coronavirus, just as the high school age kids can spread coronavirus. And with an aging population already in education, and a big issue in education is the lack of teachers, which I know Philadelphia has issues with. For me, it's about being open and honest and using data and accurate data. 
Um, other things that would be helpful, I think, is just giving us dates early enough in time so that we can prepare for all the options. If you were to say the board and height was to come out, you know, maybe this Friday and say, hey, teachers, can you formulate a remote plan, a legitimate remote, like the first month, so that when you come into school and we're prepping you for the hybrid model, if something happens, we have an emergency so that we don't have that month span where teachers had to get PD, they had to figure out how to use the programs, and then kids were left out of the picture for a month. Some teachers were able to connect. I was, because I was already used to using this technology, so I was able to make those connections. I think it's just about getting time, using the time that we have right now, even though it's only a month, using it to the best of our ability, and just letting teachers work. Because I know there's going to be a lot of teachers in the district that are going to do an amazing job. Yep. And I know there's a lot of teachers that just need the time and direction. I appreciate that answer. I took some notes. Um, that Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, for me, it's like, if I know the situation's good, I fear for other people, maybe not myself. So my biggest worry is like my wife, who is technically would be in the susceptible range from um, like food allergies. So okay. she could have an issue if I come home. Right. I mean, that's always a risky possibility. Or even that's right. Like, um, during our school meeting today where we had staff meeting on Fridays they were talking about using it as a PD and having teachers in the building like well, we've also seen in like Arizona and LA people be consistently exposed to COVID that way and there's just like so many dynamics that make people feel so uncomfortable and uncertain and just the disparity between like how it travels and from person to person the uncertainty and precarity of it is mind-boggling and I mean whatever's best is best but I think it's just that time and to get used to it because we haven't even got a chance to get used to COVID with the news reports the politics behind it right and I mean we've adapted in the past this is just the first time where everything's like up. yeah it's been quite a roller coaster sure does that answer your question absolutely thank you for that Anything else you would like to add? No, um, this has been a very stimulating discussion. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to meet you and, and talk with you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. I enjoyed having more stimulating conversations on the internet due to COVID, <laughs> but I think that's a good point to leave us. So thank you for joining us. Um, thank, thank you, Stephen. Listening, whoever is out there listening to us still, I hope you enjoyed the show. Check out the resources provided in the description. Please subscribe to our podcast, Wrapping PE. If you have any questions or would like to be a guest on the show, you can email me at wrappingpe at gmail.com. Goodbye for now. But until the next time, I would like to wish you peace and love.